Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S. is to start training Ukrainians on howitzers in the coming days. The U.S. military expects to start training Ukrainians on using howitzer artillery artillery in coming days, according to a U.S. defense senior official. Is this too little too late? And also, does this indicate that the United States has longer term plans here than the reality may suggest? For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98, he was chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So last week, uh, President Biden announced an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine, expanding the aid to include heavy artillery ahead of a wider Russian assault that was ex- that's expected and I think now has begun. So far, four flights of weapons have been sent. As part of a new package, the U.S. is planning on teaching Ukrainian trainers on how to use some of the new batch of weapons, such as howitzers and radars, and then for the trainers to instruct their colleagues inside Ukraine. So this is a train-to-train, train-to-trainer effort. But, Scott, it appears as though, as I said in the open, that the U.S. is in this for the long haul, whatever that means, no matter what Russia does at this point. Well, I mean, you know, the U.S. can have intent. Um, it can it can claim it's in it for the long haul, uh, whatever. But Russia dictates reality. That's just the the fact of the matter. I mean, uh, right now, when we're talking about artillery, for instance, we're talking about eighteen artillery pieces. Um, that's that's uh, an artillery battalion. Um, these are towed artillery, by the way, which means they're not very mobile. Um, they won't survive a day on the battlefield. Uh, they'll be brought in. They'll be. Uh, they probably won't even get around fired. They'll be, uh, you know, discovered and uh, destroyed by the Russians, who are have blanketing uh, the battlefield with, um, you know, drones with uh, surveillance capability, and they have unlimited supplies of artillery. Uh, the sole purpose of which is to destroy Ukrainian artillery. So I don't know. Who came up with this idea? I know on surface it sounds good. It pleases Congress. I know exactly the discussion that was had. They're going to send in the Q-36 radar, which is a counter-battery radar. That means that when you set this radar up uh, and the Russians fire their artillery, the radar tracks the trajectory backwards to the artillery piece. And then you send it, sends the coordinates of the enemy artillery to these uh, 18 howitzers who are going to fire their counter-battery fire and destroy the Russian artillery. And the idea is, by doing this effectively, you can start to winnow down uh, the Russian the Russian artillery. You know, how do I know this? 
I used to do this for a living. I used to run Q-36 radars. I used to do counter-battery operations designed to target the Soviet target. I know where they're coming from. I also know the limitations of the Q-36. We had to operate three at a time because the second you cue the Q-36, it's a radar. It's emitting, and the Russians will detect it and destroy it. Um, so we had to put out you know, acoustic sensors that would detect the sound of a Russian uh, artillery piece being fired, and then we would turn on the radar really quick, get a quick hit, then turn it off, and then move it. Because if you kept it there, it would be killed. It took us forever to learn how to do this, to train to do this. Uh, I don't know how good these train the trainers are, but um, they have to be the best in the world, and the Ukrainians that are being trained have to be the most adept students in the world for them to master something that it took me two years to master. They're going to master it, what, in a matter of days, and then go out into the, into the crucible of real-world battle where all of the advantages are with the Russians? These guys are going to die like flies. This is suicide. And I don't know why politicians have allowed the, 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 the desire, the need to posture, uh, to take precedent over actually preserving the lives of those who will be using this weapon, because they will all die. That's just an absolute guarantee. Garland, I know, I know whose idea this was to send the howitzers. Who's that? The manufacturer of the howitzers. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this, Scott, because I think to myself, okay, I, there's people in the Pentagon that probably can figure out what you know. How much of this, it has to be, and let me give you the two possibilities. Number one, the neocons are lunatics, and um, as has often been said, neurotics build castles in the sky, psychotics live in them. The, the neocons live in them, so they may be like, yeah, this will work. We'll just train these up and Send them out, and down the Russians will go. And how much of it is possibly actually people in the real world saying, well, we know that's a bunch of crap, but, hey, that'll be good PR so that we can say to the American people that are listening, the plucky Ukrainian army is standing in there and blah, blah, blah. So do you think this is all PR, or do these idiots actually believe that this is a realistic plan? No, I don't believe there's anybody who believes this is a realistic plan. Um, this is purely a PR exercise. This is purely a political exercise uh, designed to let American politicians be able to answer the question that when Ukraine asked for help, we gave them help. Now, I mean, the other way to say it is when Ukraine asked for help, we helped kill them. But, you know, no one's being honest here. The fact of the matter is this is purely a political PR exercise designed to bring uh, to political cover for American politicians whose posturing helped get Ukraine in the dire situation that it finds itself in today, and they want to be able to avoid the difficult questions that are going to inevitably uh, come their way about why did we let Ukraine die? Because, hey, guys, I don't know if you're looking at the news. Ukraine's dying today. Um, the phase two has started. It's over. The beginning of the end, the end of the beginning, whatever you want to say, the Russians are rolling and the Russians ain't stopping. Um, and these 18 howitzers that we're uh, pathetically training these people on, they may not even get into the fight. That would be the best thing could ever happen to these Ukrainians is that the war is over before these things can uh, be deployed to Ukraine and, and put into operation. But the moment they are, Mike, mark my words, they will be destroyed. So Senator Chris Coons is signaling he favors sending troops to Ukraine. Uh, this Delaware Democrat said Sunday that President Putin will only stop when we stop him. 
as he was pressed about whether the U.S. would send in troops to support Ukraine. We are in a very dangerous moment where it is important that on a bipartisan and measured way, we in Congress and the administration come to a common position about what we're willing to go, what we're willing to do, and the next step, and not just send arms, but send troops. Okay. So you're saying that this is begin the begin, that the, the, the this is the beginning of the end, but depends on who's crying uncle, because it, it, it doesn't appear as though the United States is going to allow... Uh, Zelensky to raise the the white flag. The Nazis are going to hang him from a tree if he raises the the white flag. So who determines it's over? If the United States wants to, if if people like Coons want to send in troops, training people on howitzers that are going to get vaporized the day you roll them out to the battlefield. The United States doesn't want this to end. So who cries uncle, if that makes sense? Look, there's, there's only one player in town. I mean, it, I'm just being honest. It's Russia. No one else counts. No one else matters. I mean, everything the U.S. is doing, everything Europe is doing right now is, 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 is of no consequence to the reality on the ground. Um, you know, uh, almost all of this equipment gets, that, we get, that we send in gets blown up in warehouses before it gets distributed. And as soon as it makes it in the foreign area, it gets blown up. And God forbid the, the unlucky uh, you know, Ukrainian soldier seeks to employ one of these weapons, he gets blown up. Um, and this is before phase two began. Now phase two is underway. And um, <clears throat> Russia will dictate how and when this conflict ends. Zelensky no longer has a vote. NATO never had a vote. They may think they did. The United States most certainly doesn't have a vote. Europe doesn't have a vote. There's only one vote, and that vote's cast by Vladimir Putin. And when he says it's over, it's over. And it will be over on terms that he dictates. Uh, I, I, I listen to his speeches, and then I could be wrong. Uh, Vladimir Putin could be blowing smoke and saying one thing and doing another. But I'll tell you this. When there was a hint of compromise... A hint of compromise back uh, when negotiations went on in Istanbul. The, um, the, the pushback from the Russian people was so strong that I, I think uh, Putin and company sat up and listened. Russia has bought into this war, for better or for worse. The Russian people are committed. The Russian people believe. The Russian people support. But they won't support a half measure. They want total victory. To, you know, so does Vladimir Putin. So I think, you know, any, you know, any pressure could be put on Putin to, you know, take a shortcut, uh, have a compromise, have a negotiated end is, is gone because that pressure can only come from the Russian people. And so far today, they're 100 percent behind him. They believe in this war. They support this war. But only if this war is being fought for a total victory over Ukraine. So that's why I think all this other stuff here our footnotes and whatever history is going to be written about this this war, because it's just not going to matter. No one's going to write a chapter on uh, the brave 18 howitzers sent by the United States. It's going to be a footnote in a chapter on, you know, the death of the Ukrainian army. And there'll be a footnote that says the U.S. provided 18 howitzers and never made it to the battlefield. Or when they did, they were blown up as soon as they crossed the border. 
Scott, you know, I remember 2006 when the uh, Israelis attacked South Lebanon and the Hezbollah had, you know, one-tenth of the people, but they had been prepping for years and years and years for one thing, to protect South Lebanon, Lebanon, and they gave the Israelis an absolute fit with like three-man teams. Here's my point. Russia ain't Hezbollah, but they're on their border, and their uh, army is designed to do one thing, to protect that border. The idea that Chris Coons is saying, we'll send some troops in, here's what I have to say. You don't want to fight Russia on their border. You don't want to send troops in. You don't want to send anything because you are going to get pulverized. You may be able to get them out in space, out in the open sea or something like that. But the idea that the U.S. or NATO is like, okay, we've had enough. We're sending in troops. If you send them into Russia's border, they ain't going to live an hour. Am I am I wrong in my evaluation of wait that? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hang on, because Garland, you left out one thing. What? MSNBC analyst Malcolm Nance oh, has I joined the fight oh, the in Ukraine. Over. He's done talking. Malcolm Nance, Scott Ritter, is done talking. He's there. That, to me, is the tipping point. Yeah, he's the deciding Scott factor. Scott. <laughs> well... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I hope he lives, and I hope he comes home, and I hope he realizes the errors of his ways. Um, I don't think Russia gives one hoot that Malcolm Nance is in Ukraine. He's not a factor. Uh, on, on the other one, though, look, this, this, this point's been answered. You know, as they say in the, in, in the court, you know, the question asked, question answered. Coons can sit there and talk. Kinziger can sit there and talk. Anybody can sit there and howl about the need to send in U.S. troops, NATO troops. It's already been asked, already been answered. NATO ain't going into Ukraine. America ain't going into Ukraine. The, the most powerful people, the people who control these things, have already considered it and said this would create World War III. This would be a nuclear conflict. We're not going to do it. Kuntz is a politician. Kuntz right now is being humiliated by Russia refusing to collapse under the weight of Joe Biden's massive sanctions. He's being humiliated by Russia refusing to admit its feet uh, north of Kiev. He's being humiliated by Russia winning on the battlefield. So he does what a politician does when they get humiliated. He comes up with ridiculous sound bites that make him look strong. Because now he can say, hey, if we had only sent in U.S. troops, we could have reversed this. That's what I was asking for. Thank God he is just an idiot senator from Delaware. Because the people that count have already answered that question. We are not sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. Period. Well... Malcolm Nance is there, Scott. So, Scott, he's not a U.S. troop. <laughs> I think Malcolm Nance is probably in, in in New York somewhere next to a green screen. That's as close as he's getting. His his uniform looked pretty clean. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. China to boost ties with Russia regardless of international situation, according to a senior Chinese diplomat. It is reported that the parties also discussed ways to deepen cooperation within the BRICS group. This is not a good sign for the U.S. so-called pressure campaign. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Quote, no matter how the international situation changes, China will remain committed to the policy it adopted earlier, which is aimed at working together with Russia to boost strategic cooperation, implement mutually beneficial cooperation, jointly promote common interests and facilitate the construction of a new model of international relations and a community of common destiny. This is according to uh, Lei Yucheng, uh, and he is a, um, and uh, according to a statement issued by Chinese Foreign Ministry earlier today, um, KJ, that statement to me is a very clear sign that China and Russia are in it to win it. Absolutely. They're in it to win it. Um, the relationship is solid. And despite U.S. attempts to peel one off against the other, to try to use them against the other, uh, the U.S. has actually pushed them closer together. The Chinese understand that if Russia falls, China is next. The U.S. is just simply trying to decide, does it have um, a dual-pronged strategy, an ambidextrous strategy, or does the road to taking down China lead through Russia, or do you take out China first and go to Russia? But no matter what the situation is, the Chinese have stated that they will work together. They have this strategic comprehensive agreement, uh, and they are seriously trying to architect a new model of international relations, a a new pole uh, of existence that is not subject to the neoliberal and neocon worldview that sees the entire planet as an extractive resource to be exploited for the uh, for the benefit of an extremely small elite, a, ma- a minority in the global north, uh, the ruling uh, imperial elite. Uh, when I see that they've um, increased a thirty percent, uh, they've had a thirty percent rise in the um, in their trade over the the uh, qu- first quarter of last year. I see two things. Number one, they are China, as we suspected, are doing everything they can thing they can to make sure that Russia makes out okay f- as far as the sanctions. Number one, but number two, and this is what I think is important. I think China realizes they have to do business with people that they can count on, and I think. It's simply um, financially wise for them to take their business from Canada and the U.S. and parts of the empire that could be impeded to Russia that's A, close, and B, they can trust. And that I think that's part of it, too. Absolutely, yes. I mean, Russia is a neighbor. It, they have a huge border together. There is a natural synergy between Russia's uh, resources and China's industrial production. Uh, there's a natural synergy between China's tech and Russia's military uh, development. Uh, and yes, you know, you want to do business with a neighbor that you can trust. Uh, the U.S. has shown itself 
to be untrustworthy. And the Chinese could very easily see themselves being subjected to exactly the same kind of expropriation, sanction, and uh, uh, economic warfare. They're already experiencing some of it, but to a much greater extent as Russia has been subjected to. So every indus, every, you know, clear thinking, rational, uh, you know, criterion would indicate that they're going to continue to work with Russia and work more intensely and deeply with Russia. Uh, two things. One, uh, countries who trade tend not to go to war. So that's a good sign if you're Chinese or if you're Russian. But the other thing is, in, in all that you've just articulated, and for as accurate as that is, isn't there also a broader European component to this as well? That a stronger tie between China and Russia would also strengthen ties between China and Europe. Yes, definitely. Now, it, China, Russia, and Europe, you know, constitute the Eurasian continent. And this is considered by all geostrategic uh, thinkers to be the global center of world power. If that consolidates in a meaningful way through economic trade ties, then this uh, shifts the pole of uh, global hegemony away from the North Atlantic and the United States. This is what uh, the neocons do not want. This is their nightmare scenario, that they would lose global control uh, as, you know, the, the global empire, the global imperium. And so, yes, this is absolutely correct. Now, what the U.S. has been trying and trying uh, to a certain extent uh, successfully, it's been peeling off uh, Europe away from Russia, parts of Europe away from Russia, so that uh, Europe and Russia become uh, at odds with each other. Uh, and therefore, you know, that piece of the continent is, you know, under a divide and conquer strategy. Uh, and that, you know, if they were right thinking, they would actually allow Europe and Russia to integrate and then try and peel Russia off against China. This is what realists like John Mearsheimer uh, have suggested, but they don't think that far ahead. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, uh, you know, personal profiteering, etc. And so that's why they also had to uh, antagonize Russia at the same time. This was the two plus three formulation in the 2018 national security strategy, national defense strategy. You know, and, and uh, th th this, is, this is very short term thinking, and I mean very short term, like months thinking, because one thing that's uh, very obvious, and that is that these um, sanctions, and one could argue intentionally, is going to wipe out Russia. Uh, excuse me, Europe's economy. It's not Russia's economy or China's economy that's going to be wiped out. The U.S. actions, the U.S. forcing to the the, the lemmings in the e, in the EU leadership to go along with these sanctions is going to deindustrialize and impoverish Europe. And I would suspect this: at some point, Europe's going to have to come crawling to China. That will be their only way out because the U.S. Empire. A, can't be trusted, but B, isn't going to be in much better shape at some point. And I suspect in the long term, it will be eastward that even Europe will, ha that will have to turn to for any hope of reconstituting their economy. KJ. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. Eventually, the sun will rise in the east and, uh, you know, all economies will orient in that direction. 
And it is definitely short-term thinking. It's extremely short-term, it's extremely, um, you know, misinformed. But at the same time, uh, you know, what the U.S. is doing is, I mean, some of this is European uh, elite misguidedness because of their, you know, kind of racial political alliance. But some of it is, you know, the global elite doing the bidding of their kindred global elite. Uh, And then the other aspect of it is as uh, the EU is damaged and its economy starts to circle the drain, uh, you know, the U.S. will pick up, uh, you know, the lost industry, the lost, uh, you know, trade. And so that's what they're thinking in the slightly uh, longer term. But all of this is to say is that this is a terrible strategy for Europe, certainly a terrible strategy for Germany and all the Western uh, European nations. And if they had any uh, sense, uh, you know, they would step away from this precipice as fast as possible. But that remains to be seen. Senior U.S. officials to visit the Solomon Islands amid China security concerns. White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator Kurt Campbell and the State Department's top official for Asia are traveling this week to the Solomon Islands. The White House has said yesterday amid concerns that the Pacific Island country is making a security pact with China. I found this uh, Ned Price saying, U.S. policy toward the region was about ensuring countries understand the benefits of engagement with Washington and, quote, not about China or any other country. Price said this at a press briefing. We'll leave it to them to contrast what we offer from what other countries, including rather large countries in the region, might offer. As I read this, all I thought about was Blinken in Anchorage with the Chinese delegation, insulting them at every turn, lecturing them instead of listening to them to the point where the Chinese delegation had to say, enough from you, we're done. Uh, Your thoughts, uh, KJ, no. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Apparently, and, you know, I don't know if this is still the case, but apparently the Chinese character for listen is uh, posted on the State Department uh, offices somewhere. But clearly, the U.S. is not listening. It is engaged only in monologue, no longer in dialogue. And what I'm hearing when, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Campbell, Mr. Asia Pivot himself, and his, um, you know, lieutenants say that we'll leave it to them. We want them to understand the benefits of working with the United States. You know, there's an undertone of threat there. You know, the Australians have already gone into the Solomon Islands, threatened them, told them they need to break ties with China. Uh, Now they're pulling out the Solomon Islands, did not respond to that. Now they're sending in the big guns, you know, the high-ranking officers at the State Department. So it is a threat. But, you know, once again, let's get this quote-unquote a security pact. It really is about infrastructure, trade, and development, which are all things that the Solomon Islands needs. It's an extraordinarily impoverished, uh, you know, society. It was enslaved by the Australians who exploited it to the max. To this day, they use Solomon Islanders as their, you know, cheap migrant labor. China is offering to come in and develop infrastructure, trade, real development 
as well as offer security because uh, the U.S. and Taiwan have been trying to stoke a color revolution to overthrow the Solomon Island government. And so under those circumstances, the relationship with China makes perfect sense. It is to the Solomon Islands' advantage. And what Australia and the United States are doing is they're trying to threaten, pry Solomon Islands away from its own legitimate interests and to force it back into alliance with Taiwan, which has never resulted in anything useful except corruption and chaos. And, and therein lies the whole problem with China, in that if you look at these people, the Solomon's Island people, they're brown people. And the U.S. empire has gone around the world treating brown people like lesser human beings, taking advantage of them, stealing their resources, forcing them into subjugation for now centuries. And the Chinese don't see brown people as lesser human beings. They see brown people as uh, an opportunity for business partners. And that's a big part of why the United States can't accept China not being in charge. Your thoughts? Absolutely, yes. I mean, the Chinese uh, thinking on this goes back, uh, you know, millennia. You know, they say under the four seas, all men and women are brothers and sisters. There's a kind of universality. There was this inclusive approach uh, to their thinking. And certainly they see the third world as kindred spirits in the struggle against uh, colonialism. They see themselves as working together to struggle against, you know, the, uh, you know, white settler colonial dominated world. And so uh, this doesn't work well for the Australians and the Americans, as I pointed out, the Australians enslaved the Solomon Islanders. They used them as, you know, uh, coolies and, you know, cheap migrant labor. And, uh, and once again, the, you know, colonial imperial mindset of dividing and conquering, of, you know, bribing the people on Malaita to, you know, to fight and to create chaos in the Solomon Islands and to, and to attack Chinese businesses. This is what they're trying for. And, uh, you know, uh, China wants a completely different uh, conception, different relations, different model of development. China is not the threat. The U.S. is the threat. Australia is the threat to the Solomon Islands. And this is why, you know, all of this has to shift. We have to look and uh, envision a new model of global relations rather than the system solely based on domination. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. MSN reports Russia begins battle for Donbass in the east and sets new Mariupol surrender deadline. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. 
Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So it's reported that Russia declared today that the next phase of the war in Ukraine was underway, kicking off a major assault on key areas in the east while giving Ukrainian holdout forces in Mariupol a new deadline to surrender. Ukraine's defense ministry also warned that Russia has intensified its offensive, which appears designed to create a land corridor linking Russian annexed Crimea to eastern Ukraine. Mark Schloboda, where are we now in this process? Yeah, well, I, I saw reports coming out of the uh, West-backed Kiev regime, out of Zelensky's mouth himself, saying the battle for Donbass has started. Newsflash, the battle for Donbass started eight years ago when the regime... That <laughs> seized power uh, with the open support of the U.S. and, and uh, other NATO countries uh, began a war on its own people in East Ukraine to subjugate them to its seizure of power in Kiev. And it's been ongoing since. But there's certainly an intensification uh, and um, of it and um, the repositioning of uh, Russian uh, uh, forces, um, the uh, essential closing of the cauldron surrounding them, uh, going around behind this large redoubt of the uh, Kiev regime's armed forces on the fringes of uh, the Donbass region uh, uh, between Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, and Severodonetsk. Uh, but they uh, – a big part of the military maneuvers both to the north around Kharkov and to the south up from Kherson has been principally to envelop this large agglomeration of Kiev regime forces here. It's not quite clear how many are there, at least that hasn't been made public. Um, it could be anywhere from 40 to 100,000 troops. Uh, they are well fortified in, but um, they have been pummeled for some time now. Um, the forces of the Donbass republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, have been making slow but steady advances uh, through their territory to this you know, last position. And it must be said that this area, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, this is actually where the resistance movement of Donbass began um, back in 2014 when Kiev regime forces first um, uh, sent you know, military that didn't respond very well and then the nascent battalions uh, to, to attack and, and to attempt to take over this area for, for the Kiev regime. Um, and eventually they did. Uh, they were driven uh, – the uh, Donbass forces were driven back to Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and it was a, a bit of a back and forth, although uh, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk were never um, uh, fully liberated. So this is kind of – it's a very symbolic final last battle for Donbass because it's also where it all began. And in preparation for this, besides the the buildup of forces around, there has been some heavy artillery shelling, caliber missiles, uh, even some uh, uh, pinpoint bombing um, uh, in preparation to, to soften up uh, the the heavily uh, dug in and fortified uh, Kiev regime forces for this. Um, so if uh, you know, I, I don't even want to say if, but when 
these forces fall. And it could be some time because they are very heavily fortified in. But that will really change any uh, negotiating logic and calculus. It will give Russia a great deal of political leverage um, uh, with, with regards to the Kiev regime because it will represent the majority and and the the strongest amount of their armed forces uh either surrendering or or if it comes to that being neutralized uh mariupol meanwhile is just a holdout i of some 3000 mostly azov and some foreign mercenaries uh most of them are dug in below in the tunnel network and and bomb ne- uh, bomb shelter network uh beneath the the Azov Stahl steel plant in uh, Mariupol, and this is about a two mile by two mile uh, square area, and it has received regular bombings um, at this point. Um, we we have heard word from Azov that supposedly they have 1,000 civilians down there with them. Why civilians would choose to crawl into holes with doomed neo-Nazis, uh, civilians from Mariupol, which had gone for Donbass early in the conflict, if they are indeed there, uh, one must presume that they are human shields, but there's really no proof at this point. To that effect, Russia is basically providing a several hours a window a day, basically, of, of uh, ceasefire um, to try to encourage um, you know, either of those forces to surrender or to, if they do indeed have civilians down there, uh, to, to allow them to come out and survive if they will not give up. Um, and evidently Zelensky has ordered them to fight to the death. Um, but, um, Today, at least 120 civilians in uh, the buildings uh, surrounding the Azov Stahl steel plant, uh, they uh, they were uh, rescued. They were gotten out today. So at least that good came of that uh, uh, time window for humanitarian corridor. I, I, I would add this, you know, the real, the truth is, even though we 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 talk about Zelensky as though he is the president. The Nazis didn't listen to him before the war, and I don't suspect they're taking orders from him now. They're doing what they want to do in reality. I, I still feel like he has no agency, and he's he's an absolute puppet, and that this is just part of the neocon plan. But but let me ask you this, uh, I, I, something I wanted to ask about. I've been seeing on the Telegram, you know, I'm sure you've seen it, um, various people being interviewed, various prisoners being interviewed, etc., the big controversy was mixed in with the Azov fighters. There was potential NATO. You know, it went from U.S. generals to NATO generals to NATO fighters to foreign mercenaries. I, th- then we hear that there's some of the foreign mercenaries have been captured and possibly even NATO service members. What? What? what how is all of that stuff shaking out, Mark? What? What do we know for sure about that stuff, if anything, so far? And yeah, I know you know almost- all of the rumors. Yeah, yeah, it was almost sure from the beginning that the NATO generals and so on, that was nonsense. All right, that was I, I, that was unbelievable from the very beginning. In fact, that almost seems like a character trolling to try to discredit the the rest of the idea. Uh, but 
uh, by all accounts, there are some three to four hundred foreign guests there. Uh, I would suggest that the majority of them are foreign mercenaries, although it certainly seems possible that there might be some uh, NATO operatives, uh, serving operatives down there as well, although the line does get blurred with distinction between the the private and uh, military security contractors and, and um, uh, the regular serving armed services. There's kind of a, a revolving door there, um, and it's no secret that large amount of uh, certainly U.S. Uh, military budget is is actually uh, privatized and, and outsourced as, as it were um so but um the, uh, certainly at least two british uh mercenaries uh have been taken uh alive they have been captured um they both have have basically been recounting and and of course they didn't fight at all they were just the cooks or <laughs> Of, of the usual sort, we were we were just the, the neo Nazis cooks. Uh, that's a, at least what we've heard f- uh, from one of them. Uh, but um, there has been a you know, talk of a prisoner exchange. Uh, oddly, what is being talked most about the uh, biggest. Ukrainian uh, political opposition figure uh, who leads the now banned opposition bloc, uh, which was at at the beginning of last year, according to some polls, the largest political party in Ukraine. Um, its leader was uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, um, a businessman um, uh, from East Ukraine. Um, he uh, first he was charged with treason. Uh, he was uh, placed under house arrest. Uh, he disappeared in the beginning of the combat. Now he emerges within the hands of the SBU, um, and um, Zelensky was was basically uh, he was himself posting videos gloating that his biggest political uh, opponent in the country is in chains and handcuffs, you know, uh, before him. And, and he talked about sending him back to Russia. He's, he's an East Ukrainian uh, um, oligarch, but, but of course, anyone who doesn't support the Maidan is, is a traitor, you know, the, the geopolitical reorientation uh, of the country with the West backed uh, putsch in 2014. Anyone who doesn't support it is a traitor and no other foreign policy is even considerable now. It, it, it cannot be uh, suggested or considered, uh, but that is that is the reality of the quote democracy uh, of the new um, uh, Kiev regime. Um, and it has to be said that his other biggest political opponent, the former uh, president, the candy oligarch Poroshenko, uh, even though being a pro Maidan politician, he was also charged with the exact same uh, politicized treason charges. Uh, and um, uh, he just received, he, he's not actually paraded around in chains um, as if it's some kind of, of thing that. Zelensky should be extolled for. There was talk about exchanging him for some of these British mercenaries. Uh, I'm not sure how that deal would work, considering that he is not a Russian citizen. He is he's a Eastern Ukrainian big 
you know, political opposition figure, um, his wife has been promoting the idea and, and evidently some of the mercenaries uh, that are held by the Russian armed forces themselves have said, oh, yes, please exchange us for whoever this guy is <laughs> as long as it gets us out of here. Uh, but I don't think that that uh, particular line of prisoner exchange is going to go anywhere. Certainly Kiev does not seem receptive to the idea and uh, it's not clear why Russia would want to exchange um, uh, foreign mercenaries for a Ukrainian political figure. Uh, really quickly, Ukrainians used cluster bombs in a Russian-controlled village. Uh, I find, This was from the New York Times. I find it very interesting that this would be reported, uh, true or false, but your thoughts, uh, what uh, your take on this? We got, what, about a minute left? Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time. It's it's funny that they didn't catch the earlier uh, ballistic missile strike by Kiev and Donetsk, uh, Donetsk just a few weeks ago that hit the city of the center and killed uh, some dozen uh, or so people, uh, also with cluster munitions. But um, cluster munitions have been used on both sides of the conflict. Here, the Kiev regime is using them on its own towns and cities and seems to have only hit civilians with them. Um, it has to be said that neither Ukraine, Russia, nor the United States have banned these weapons and all actively use them uh, for uh, military or, I guess, in some cases, political terror. Mark Shloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I know you're staying up late and we appreciate you doing so. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. military is training third world coup leaders again. Americans should be experiencing an easy an uneasy sense of deja vu. In the last two years, U.S. trained officers have overthrown West African governments at least four times. Has the battlefield shifted from Latin America to the continent of Africa? Well, for insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time, and he wrote the book White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of South Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Major General Andrew Rowling, the commander of U.S. Army Southern Eastern, I'm sorry, European Task Force Africa, insists that the Pentagon's objective is to, quote, showcase a way, the American way, that we train and build leaders not only in their tactical tasks, but in the ethos of the United States Army, end quote. Dr. Horn, I think we've seen this movie before. It sounds a lot like the School of the Americas, located at Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia, uh, the Army Center that has trained more than 60,000 soldiers and police, mostly from Latin America, 
in counterinsurgency and combat-related skills since it was founded in 1946. So widely documented is the participation of the school's graduates in torture, murder, and political repression throughout Latin America that they had to change their name to the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. Dr. Horn, we've seen this film before. Well, you are on the money, needless to say, and the situation might even be worse than your dire portrait portrays. What I mean is that we have known for some time about the depredations of AFRICOM, the Pentagon's military command that focuses on Africa. It obviously was implicated in those uh, regime changes that you made reference to on the continent. But my point today is that we may be in a brave new world, particularly after the events of February 2022, not only the Russian intervention into Ukraine, but of course what preceded it was the remarkable statement on February 4, 2022 in Beijing between Presidents Putin and President Xi, which in many ways, uh, inferentially at least, was announcing the commencement of a new international situation and the fabled New World Order. And that has been accompanied, as you know, by this rather hairy attempt to find alternatives to the resources that once, and actually still are, being taken or bought, quote-unquote, from Russia. I'm speaking of natural gas and petroleum in the first instance. Now the plan is to get those resources from Africa, which has the advantage, quote-unquote, of being in proximity, rather close to the European continent. Uh, I think on this program previously, we've talked about how there is an attempt to source natural gas from Algeria. And in fact, uh, perhaps indicative also of this new world order is that Algeria has been playing hardball and playing Spain off against Italy for its natural gas. And this is a kind of turnabout from the bad old days of colonialism when European nations would play one African nation off against another or one ethnic group off against another. And so the question then becomes, how does the United States and its North Atlantic allies gain an advantage over these African nations, which they're going to be more heavily dependent on? Well, obviously, the play will be regime change. And you get an inkling of what might be approaching from what happened thousands of miles away in Pakistan, where Prime Minister or the former Prime Minister Imran Khan has charged that his defrocking a few days ago was due, not least, to A, uh, his uh, getting closer to Moscow, and that helps to incite hysteria in the Central Intelligence Agency, which then collaborates with his domestic opponents to dislodge him. And so that might be the gambit that you will see increasingly in Africa, and that underscores the role of AFRICOM, that underscores the aforementioned uh, nefarious role of the equivalent of the School for the Americas, 
which was basically a coup d'etat college. And it also underscores the, the role of U.S. placemen and students like the monarchy in Morocco, uh, which has been a thorn in the flesh of Algeria for years, even more so now, given this changed situation. And they are now crossing swords over the fact that Algeria supports the liberation movement in Western Sahara. Morocco intends to continue its improper occupation of Western Sahara. Morocco is being backed by the United States. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see what the Western European nations do, considering what I just referenced uh, relating to their reliance upon Algeria for natural gas. But I'm sure there will be backdoor support, uh, if nothing else, for Morocco and possibly attempts to destabilize uh, the regime in Algiers. So, unfortunately, uh, that's the way things look as of today. Let me ask you this and throw in another point to this that I think has to be taken in and it has to be considered in this context of the instability in Africa that will also contribute to that this. And that is with what's going on in Ukraine, with the likelihood of some level of famine in Africa and the global south. Um, recently, Emmanuel Macron was re- referring to a book by a French American journalist by the name of Stephen, S- Stephen Smith. And Stephen Smith predicted pretty an astronomical number. He said the migrant population in Africa. Africa, from Africa in Europe is around 9 million, and he predicts it to grow to between 150 and 200 million within the next 30 years. Now, certainly, there are people looking at what's going to happen with food insecurities due to this uh, Ukraine crisis, saying that something's going to be happening. How do you think the instability of Africa from food shortages and add in the likely um, mass migrations to Europe plays into this whole scenario? Well, the point that you raise underscores another point that is troubling. And what I'm referring to is the lack of outrage that uh, I have detected on the part of what the late Glenn Ford used to call the black misleadership class, uh, speaking in the first instance of certain members of the Congressional Black Caucus and certain leaders of the NAACP. I mean, here you have the spectacle of President Biden saying that he's going to admit 100,000 Ukrainians into the United States, leapfrogging the line at the same time that Haitians are being roughhoused and manhandled on the border. Here you have a situation where I just saw on a a formal U.S. government media outlet, uh, speaking of the Voice of America program Africa 54, which just had a a very disturbing segment on how uh, black students, are being mistreated and maltreated while seeking refuge in the U.S. ally that is Poland. Now, the United States is pouring billions into that part of Europe. Uh, One would hope and imagine that CBC leaders, who supposedly have some kind of oversight over the expenditure of our tax dollars, and of course, uh, oftentimes they suggest that they have a role in terms of protecting the interests of black people writ large, that they would be protesting about this. Just today in the New York Times, Brett Stevens, a conservative columnist who has quite a bit of influence in the United States, said that every Ukrainian refugee, or any Ukrainian for that matter, who wants a green card 
should be accorded a green card. That is to say, a legitimate immigration status that allows them to seek employment and gain benefits and all the rest. Now, where are our leaders saying, wait a minute, uh, hold on for a second. What about these Haitians who have been trying to get into the United States? What about the Cameroonians, for example, who I would say because of influence of uh, programs like this were granted uh, temporary protective status in the amount of 40,000 of them. But it, it does not really speak well, I'm afraid to say, uh, for not only what's happening today, but what may unfold uh, in the future. And uh, needless to say, this is uh, highly disturbing. Since since day one, the Biden-Harris administration has, has made it clear that renewing democracy in the United States and around the world is essential to meeting the new challenges facing the United States and the world. And then on uh, in last December, Biden held the first of his two summits for democracy. Uh, how do these AFRICOM and Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation enterprises foster or or perpetuate this uh, this democratic Biden agenda? Well, obviously it's anti-democratic, and obviously we should not take seriously this dyad, this new trope of autocracy versus democracy that Mr. Biden has put forth is little more than throwing dust in the eyes of the populace. I think a more accurate and adequate way to look at the current international scene is to look at it as the stewards of the old order, uh, speaking of the United States and its North Atlantic allies in the first place, are desperately seeking to maintain their hegemony and domination Whereas those who have suffered under their lash, uh, led, shall we say, ironically, by what is routinely referred to as the world's largest democracy, speaking of India, which, of course, has not gone along with sanctions, has not endorsed the castigation of Russia, for example, or reference here our previous discussions about their long-term relationship. And so the division in the world right now, generally speaking, it's between those trying to maintain the corrupt, exploitative status quo and those trying to challenge the corrupt, exploitative status quo. Africa is to be found amongst the nations in that latter category. And once again, I think it puts black leadership in the United States in a kind of quandary. Because the rhetoric would suggest that they would stand with Africa. They would stand with the Caribbean. At least that's the rhetoric. But, of course, that is not often the case because they know, more than most, that the ruling class of the United States demands unity, demands uniformity uh, when it comes to uh, foreign policy priorities. And the United States ruling class does not, uh, except uh, with equanimity, the point that members of Congress or members of organizations like the NAACP who were supported with cash infusions from the 1% would somehow uh, stand against their policy in Eastern and Central Europe. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they finesse that question, how they uh, will appear 
to be uh, in solidarity with their black brothers and sisters, but actually will not be, I think it'll be an example of moonwalking that would make Michael Jackson awaken from the grave. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to The New Arab, Yemen's Houthis criticize new U.S.-led task force in Red Sea and say it contradicts the U.N.-brokered truth. Yemen's Ansar al-Allah criticized a U.S.-led task force that will patrol the Red Sea following a series of attacks by Ansar al-Allah in a waterway that's essential to global trade. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Uh, Mohammed Abdul Salam, the uh, the chief negotiator for Ansar al-Allah uh, and spokesman, said late Friday that the U.S. move in the Red Sea, which comes amid a ceasefire in the country's civil war, contradicts Washington's claim of supporting the U.N. brokered truth. A truce. Laith. Not that this is a revelation, but in my opinion, this is just further evidence of the position that the United States does not want peace anywhere in the world, whether it be Ukraine, Yemen, Ethiopia, the U.S. just continues to stir the pot. Yes, and this is part of the vicious cycle of imperialism, the highest form of capitalism, which depends, it's a, it's a pyramid scheme that depends on the extraction of raw resources from uh, at the cheapest possible uh, cost, which requires genocide and looting of the resources of lands that have been genocided. And so the minute you stop this, uh, the whole pyramid scheme collapses and it becomes impossible for producers in Europe and North America to create products uh, that are competitive uh, on the international scale. Uh, therefore, uh, the United States is addicted as an empire to genocide and uh, the looting of lands that have been genocided. So uh, in this form, we know the United Nations is, is uh, only becoming a full tool because they've signed this uh, uh, ceasefire. The ceasefire is going to last another month, supposedly. And if and if no supplies arrive to Yemen in terms of oil products and and food and so forth to the country during these two, two months, uh, the everybody should be prepared for the destruction of uh, Saudi oil infrastructure and the collapse of the international uh, trade in uh, oil products. 
And the other thing is, you know, and I think as an American, that Americans don't even blink about this, that they're so trained to believe in the empire. Because here's what I'm thinking. The Red Sea, that's all the way on the other side of the world. I don't see like China or I don't know, some random country saying, you know, there's something going on in the Gulf of Mexico and we think somebody is selling something illegal so they can do something in Guatemala. So we're going to send a, comp- a, a, a ship from China to patrol the Gulf of Mexico. The, even the idea that the U.S. I mean, let me put it like this. It reinforces the idea that these people believe that they control the entire Entire world that the U.S. seven thousand miles or how many many thousands of miles away can suddenly say, you know, the Red Sea over there, and it has nothing to do with us. We will send some ships to patrol and control those shipping lanes. Late. Yes, because these shipping lanes uh, can guarantee the continuation of the looting of the uh, of Africa and Asia and such, and so uh, the United States. Well, uh, as we are seeing right now, more and more so as an empire is um, ridding itself of all the pretenses of human rights and democracy and such, and is now becoming viciously open at what it has been doing for decades. But now it's in the open. And unfortunately for much of the American public and people living in, in, in the core of the empire, they... Uh, are living in a separate reality. What they speak about in the media in the West, uh, in about places like Yemen or the situation in Ukraine or Palestine or what have you, is in a parallel universe that is separate from reality completely. And the rest of the world are watching uh, with amazement uh, how uh, the public in the within the empire is uh, being subjected to this uh, parallel reality. So it's reported that this new task force of two to eight ships patrolling at a time is targeting smuggling coal, drugs, weapons, and people in the Red Sea. And they continue with the story, coal smuggling through the Red Sea has been used by al-Qaeda-linked al-Shabaab to fund attacks. Uh, How much of this is pretext for just wanting to be sure that imperial hegemony is maintained versus how much of this is actually drug intervention, intervening in weapons smuggling and, and trafficking of humans? Oh no! This this has nothing to do with trafficking of humans, or the as uh, you know they they claim the coal trade, um, because we know at the core of uh, human trafficking comes war, and war is created by the United States. Uh, the other thing about the coal uh, trafficking. This is about what's happening in Somalia, where huge swaths of land. Uh, are being cut out and turned into cheap coal for the consumption in the United Arab Emirates in their shisha, you know, water pipes. And uh, the those who control these streets are the emirs and the princes in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and the Somali central federal state is fighting the regional uh, provincial governments that are allowing this to happen, the looting of Somalia, and uh, it has nothing to do with Yemen. Yemen has nothing to do with this 
trade in uh, uh, illegal uh, plant-based coal. Um, so uh, you see how the United States is using buzzwords of actual crimes that it is participating on in, specifically human trafficking and uh, uh, the you know uh, natural coal uh, smuggling, and is trying to blame the resistance in Yemen for it. Uh, I do want to ask you about this. Israel's government, uh, there's reports that it's facing collapse, that the um, Arab party is threatened to, to quit over. Now, it's interesting that they call them Jerusalem clashes. You know, it's kind of like if I mugged somebody, beat them over the head and took their wallet. That's not a clash. That's a mugging. <laughs> but here they call it clashes. Your thoughts on uh, the, uh, the Israel's government over the clashes? Oh, yeah, it's getting really bad. Just uh, a few hours ago, the um, Zionist Air Force attacked Gaza. And uh, for the first time ever, the resistance in Gaza used uh, Russian-made anti-air defenses and chased away the American F-16s from the skies of Gaza. This is a... Uh, right now, we're at the point... Where just like last year, when the Zionists attempted to invade the Aqsa Mosque, uh, and for the last week and a half, they've been trying to do the same thing and 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 uh, do uh, religious sacrifices in the holy site in the middle of Ramadan, some wacko cultist actions, and as we see, the, as the repression is being meted on the Palestinians in Ramadan uh, for just coming to the Aqsa Mosque and making sure uh, it doesn't get desecrated by just being present there and praying there. They are getting beaten and uh, assaulted and arrested in mass. And as happened last year, we're at the edge of Gaza responding in uh, defense of people in Jerusalem. And as we see at this moment, it seems like the Zionists are the ones that are call, you know, begging for a beating for themselves by attacking Gaza before Gaza even entered any um, of the conflict that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, unfolding in Jerusalem. What about as part of that uh, story, the the discussion about the Islamist Ram Party suspending its membership in the coalition protesting the government's handling of these confrontations. How significant is that? Um, does does the party really have that kind of leverage and that kind of power? I mean, it is the thread that's keeping the government in power without this party's involvement. If the split within the Zionists continues in terms of uh, if Netanyahu's party doesn't build a coalition with the current uh, two big Zionist parties that are in power uh, without the Arabs, <laughs> because that's what Netanyahu was refusing to do. He was refusing even this house slave Arab uh, Palestinian party that is, you know, claiming to be a Muslim party while at the same time supporting a Zionist project, 
even that is not enough for people like Netanyahu. But so we have at this moment, it seems, the actions of uh, the Zionists are making it impossible for even a house slave party to uh, not take a stance of at least distancing themselves from being connected to the slaughter that is unfolding. And we see that also. Uh, similarly, Jordan just now made a huge, uh, you know, statements that are very strong. Um, and it seems because the whole country is shaking right now, the king of Jordan, his only legitimacy to the throne is being the protector of the uh, holy sites in Jerusalem as um, as a custodian of those. And here we have the holy sites in Jerusalem being desecrated, uh, and he's in an alliance with this Zionist colony. So right now, even the closest allies of Israel are having to make positions that are uh, distancing themselves from it. Uh, Turkey has launched a new offensive against the PKK in Iraq using drones and helicopters. And uh, what, do, what do you, we got about well, we got about two and a half minutes. Your thoughts on, um, on, on what's going on there? Oh, this is unfolding fast because, of course, uh, Turkey has at least 22 occupation bases in North Iraq. And its uh, rivalry with the Kurdish Contras in both Iraq and Syria uh, keeps on, um, uh, you know, forcing it to take actions that are actually going to work against it in this situation. Even the uh, Sadr uh, party that is very close to the United States uh, took, uh, you know, published statements that are uh, very, uh, you know, high in their demands of the end of occupation, Turkish occupation. So uh, you could see how the actions of Turkey, uncalculated, uh, are, are um, you know, leading to, um, you know, weakening its position in Iraq. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Progressives say climate inaction, student debt, explain Biden's drop in support among young voters. One observer suggested there's a decent amount of young people not at all that pleased to see the administration sucking up to fossil fuel executives as the earth rapidly loses its capacities to maintain life. How will this portend for the Democrats in the midterms and for Biden in 2024? 
For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, as well as a former radio and television producer for Chicago's public media's This American Life, and he's a Knight Fellowship recipient, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Wilmer. So progressive political observers yesterday said that Beltway pundits should not be surprised by Joe Biden's plummeting approval ratings among voters under the age of 34, considering the party's failure to pass anti-poverty measures or climate action and address student debt crisis after the president garnered significant support from young people in 2020. And not only is it, John, people below uh, below the age of 34, I think his overall rating is about 33 percent across the board. John Jeter. Uh, uh, which I think is a historic low or tied for a historic low for this point in uh, a presidency in a particular administration. Um, so, yeah, he's in real trouble. The Democrats are in real trouble. And they have a broader existential problem, which is that how do you continue to win elections? How do you continue to be relevant uh, when you are wholly unresponsive to your constituency? And I don't think there's a real answer for that. I I, I think it's something they're going to have to um, uh, fix or die in. Uh, at least in terms of uh, uh, of a, a functioning, a functional political party, uh, even as an opposition party, I don't know how they continue to do that. I, I heard something really disturbing, but at the same time, kind of satisfying. Yesterday, uh, it was a, uh, a podcast. Two white men that seem to be younger, middle aged, maybe forty ish, and the way that they were speaking of Obama was so dismissive and so um, uh, devoid of any kind of uh, respectfulness that we are sort of accustomed to hearing, you know, if if only in part because of how, Obama How about is. reverence? Yeah, they, they, they had none of that. They called him a, a sack of you-know-what. And, and I was really struck by there's no, you know, everyone's taken off the gloves now. And the more progressive uh, whites who have typically been sort of reluctant to criticize Obama, at least uh, with such virulence, because he's the first black president, and there's some sort of, uh, like you say, reverence for that, uh, that doesn't seem to matter anymore. And so I think the Democrats are in a very real pickle. Um, I don't know if they even have a figure who can, um, who has the megawatt charisma that Obama did have, but it's been lost and ruined, squandered on his uh, policy uh, 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 mistakes, or I guess they weren't mistakes, they were what he intended to do, but policy uh, uh, betrayals. Uh, and so, yeah, the Democrats are, are in a very real trouble, not just in the midterms and not even just in 2024, but beyond. Let me, let me ask you this, John. It seems to me <clears throat> bigger than that, too. It's a systemic problem where the in the you know, in the same way that the stock market flourished when the economy was shut down. And you said and you could look at it and say, boy, the 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 stock market seems to have decoupled from the bricks and mortar money making apparatus that the stock market is supposed to at least symbolically represent. 
It seems the same with politics, because not only does it seem that the Democrats are staring a biblical <laughs> proportional wipeout, they don't seem to care. They, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me that there's a matter of urgency or concern that you would expect. And I tend, being the cynical one, I tend to feel like this. The billionaires behind them don't care because they win. If the Republicans are in, they win. Now it's to the point where the Democrats and the Republicans are so overtly saving the same masters. To me, to the masters, who do they care who's in office? Either way, it's the same thing. Your thoughts? I think that's exactly right. I um, I can't remember who said this. I'm sure I'm stealing from someone, but uh, they said that politics and, and economics are eventually are ultimately concerned with the same thing. Who gets what or who gets ahead, right? Uh, and and in either calculation for the very rich, Republicans or Democrats, Trump or Biden, they continue to get ahead. The problem for them, of course, is that the people continue to fall further and further behind. And even though uh, I read a brilliant piece from the, the, the late uh, uh, Soviet dissident scientist Sakharov, uh, from 1968, where he talked about the, stupefi the stupefying effects of American culture on the people. And it, it, that is certainly undeniable, right, that we're not the most enlightened, informed uh, uh, democratic participants in the United States. But even in the United States, people recognize hunger for what it is. And that's what we're on the verge of feeling and seeing widespread, right, where we've already seen this tremendous decline in our living standards. If you're my age, if you you know I'm 57, and uh, the the world that I began working in in the late 1980s does not exist anymore, right? I mean, the first two jobs I had were not just unionized but closed shops, uh, and so that world does not exist anymore. The protections don't exist anymore. The 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 healthcare that we could take for granted, you know, even though they came with our jobs, that doesn't exist anymore. And people are starting to recognize that. Now, the problem, of course, is that they don't know what to do with it because we are uninformed. We are mis miseducated, right? Uh, as Fred Hampton said, it's a class war, right? And people don't understand that. And so there's at least a 50-50 chance, and I'm being very generous, that, uh, you know, uh, the United States, I think, will erupt in some very tribalized balkanized conflicts before it gets its um, act together. But yeah, I mean, this is a class war. This is the wealthy against the working class. Uh, the wealthy has been basically um, tuning us up for 40 years and especially for the last 15 years, right? They have robbed and fleeced American homeowners by the millions, right? Stolen their life savings and been rewarded with trillions more to do it again by the central bank and by the political class. Um, the, the average American doesn't realize that, but they're starting to feel the effects of that. And I, I also heard uh, on, um, I think he was on MSNBC, maybe over the weekend, uh, a, a Joe Biden deputy, I think actually the senator from Delaware, who was a former aide to um, Joe Biden, uh, suggesting that perhaps we need to send men and women to Ukraine. Yeah, that was All Chris right, Coon. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go, go ahead if you want to, right? But that's the beginning of the end. And let me just say this very quickly, too. Uh, uh, so much of this reminds, I worked, I was fortunate enough to work in South Africa from 1999 to almost 2003. And uh, I heard time and time again, uh, mostly black, but some white South Africans who told me that 
They knew the apartheid system was ending by the desperation in the last few years, not just sort of uh, the average citizen, but the, the ruling class seemed to get increasingly desperate and more corrupt. And so there were the stock market and insurance uh, uh, industries, uh, 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 you know, just corruption seemed to flourish because people realized that this thing was coming to an end and this will be their last opportunity to uh, to plunder, right? That's what I think is happening in the United States. I think a lot of people, not, not everyone certainly, and maybe not even the majority, but key people, particularly those who are in power, understand that this thing is coming to an end, right? How it's gonna end, we don't know, but the opportunities are going to be greatly diminished because we've been living on, on fumes as a nation, certainly since 2010, and the, and the uh, the Great Recession. So, uh, yes, it's uh, what's the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. I I, I think we are <laughs> we, we are doing that. Well, uh, to that point, and to to Garland's earlier question, when you look at the campaign promises that Joe Biden made about the minimum wage and uh, child care and student debt and a number of the other things, none of which has made its way uh, to the kitchen tables or to the doorsteps of the American electorate, uh, there are just a lot of people that are incredibly frustrated. And this whole uh, rhetoric about when people look, go to the gas pumps and they're now paying $6 and $7 a gallon for gas and, oh, that's Putin's gas hike, that, that isn't playing very well. Uh, so, as you said, the 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 party is currently uh, is is totally unresponsive to its base. The CBC is conspicuously silent, and so we were talking yesterday about empires uh, implode. They collapse. They're like stars. They they die from the inside. They don't die from existential threat. They die from the inside. And so now we see uh, Biden uh, sanctioning Venezuela, but then having to send a delegation to Venezuela to beg Maduro for gasoline. And the Saudis won't take his phone calls. That's it. uh, it, It's a what is the poem, uh, Casey, at bat? It's a sad day in Mudville. Right. Right, right. The, the contradictory, the contradictions abound. And I, I just don't, uh, you know, I, I don't think people understand uh, that that we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, several, uh, several sort of trajectories that are unprecedented, several sort of uh, events that are unprecedented in uh in, in global history and world history i mean in a certain sense it's, it's very predictable and it's not uh unprecedented at all right empires fall right and that's what the united states has been uh, certainly for the last century and we're seeing it fall and we're seeing it fall frankly right after it's uh gotten involved with uh afghanistan which is the graveyard of empires right we just left afghanistan after what 20 years uh, and it's uh, the taliban are more are stronger than they've ever been, and so what we're seeing is this sort of uh, what what is what what uh, 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 what did Mark Twain say? A history doesn't 
doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, you can't you, you just can't com- you can't continue to ignore. Uh, I, I mean, look, I, I'll just be honest. I mean, the Democrats could actually remain in power if they did just one thing. Right. Yep. If they provided people with or at least at least in the short term. Right. Mm-hmm. If they provided people with with, with a single pair health care, with the Medicare for all. Right. Uh, if they did that, they could remain in power, certainly for the foreseeable future, right? Just that one thing, they won't even do that. It's just sort of doubling down on stupidity. It's, you know, continuing to dig when you're in a hole. I, you know, there's just, the, because they don't have any answers anymore, right? And, and part of that is because we've marginalized, this is something I want to write about uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in the future. Part of the reason we're struggling so much right now to find solutions, part of the reason the media is so corrupted, that it's so propagandized, right, that it's not giving us any useful information and really just filling the American people's minds with lies. Although that's not that's not working because I read somewhere that only six percent of the American people buy um, buy these reference to inflation as Putin's price hikes are only six percent so that's not working anymore but 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 part of the reason that we're in we're struggling so mightily to fix this this crisis to to address this crisis is put because over the last 50 years we've radicalized the most progressive and and i'm sorry we marginalized mm-hmm. the most radical and progressive voices in uh, uh in our society right I'm, I'm of course i'm speaking mostly of black people but also even the radical white voices the people who were allies of the radical blacks in the 60s and the 50s uh, even in the early 70s right we've we, we've marginalized those voices so they're not even part of the part of the discussion so we have people like tucker carlson who is a demagogue right who's not half as talented even as ronald reagan right mm. but with the field vacated, he is, you know, he, he's the he's the one-eyed man in the land of the blind, right? Is the left, the Democrats certainly, MSNBC, they have no counter for Tucker Carlson, right? And so his ideas to people who are uneducated, who are misinformed, who are angry, who are who are filled on a daily basis with the subliminal racism and patriarchal animosity, animus, right? Tucker Carlson makes perfect sense to them. And so that, you know, leads me to believe that we're on the on the precipice of some very, very real danger. Uh, and we don't have we're not having the discussion that we need to begin to recover, to begin to address what really is uh, uh, causing our distress as a as a nation. And we've only got about 30 seconds. And this binary thinking is incredibly dangerous because when you try to have this conversation, if you provide anything that's counter to the dominant narrative, you are a heretic. We got yes. we got yes. 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, you're marginalized and exiled and you, you suffer, you know, as the Marxists say, a social death. Right. And in some cases. Right. Well, and we're seeing this with the with the very clear pogrom fatal pogroms against black people, right, that the, the media refuses to cover in mm-hmm. any sort of mm-hmm. uh, holistic way. We're seeing that, uh, that, 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 you know, this is, a, this is a campaign of state terror against black people that's meant to reinforce the status quo, even as it's unraveling. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's just an unprecedented time. You know, I, you know, I'm 57 years old. I, I'm 57 years old. I've never seen America in such a gotcha. moral panic. 
John Jeter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, brother. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Judge allows Durham to move forward with Sussman prosecution. A federal judge last Wednesday ruled that special counsel Durham can proceed with his office's prosecution against a lawyer with ties to Democrats for making a false statement to the FBI in 2016. What does this mean going forward as this story just continues to unravel? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, welcome back. It's great to be back, Wilmer. Thanks for having me. You know, Steve, I think one of the things that it's interesting about these trials, I remember the Roger Stone trial, and, you know, certain things came out of it in the trial that we didn't know before. And I think what is interesting, well, first of all, if you look at this story, I, I, I noticed that in this story in The Hill, they say twice, well, the judge said there may be some merit to your argument, but we've got to we've got to hear the evidence of the trial. In other words, he struck down your motion. You know, they try to pretend like it's if you look at the story, it's like, well, the judge said it sounds good. No, he either upheld your motion for dismissal or he struck it down. He struck down the motion dismissal and said, we got to hear the trial. At any rate, your thought about the trial. Well, I'm I'm certainly glad it's going forward. We do get to find out a little bit more about how our government works, how the world largely around us works. I know we're going to find out uh, we're going to get several additional inches of, of Clinton hanging metaphorically, of course, rope. Uh, and, uh, you know, it will, it will help a lot of people, I think, get over the idea that politicians like them and want to help them. Um, I'm always skeptical of, of how it's going to play out in terms of accountability, but, uh, I'm, I'm both, you know, happily surprised that it's going forward and, uh, not at all shocked that they're trying to spin it with, uh, with, we get to count almost this time. It's just like horseshoes. The judge said it got somewhere near the realm of the pen, so we're going to count it, and we're going to go ahead and take those points. Um, I, it's it's reaching, and it's kind of sad. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I find interesting is that U.S. judge, U.S. District Judge uh, Christopher Cooper, who was appointed by former President Obama, uh, is allowing this to move forward, which makes me think there's more here than has been presented in the media. Um, now, he did say that there there's some merit but cannot be fully ruled on in the pretrial stage, which means there could be more on the back end. But to even allow it to go even further by an Obama-appointed judge says to me there's more in this pot than uh, is, is, is on the surface. Well, certainly, and it could be that they just needed somebody to hang out to try for this, and Michael Sussman was the Perkins Cole attorney and advisor that happened to draw the short straw. That that could be a possibility. 
Um, but I mean, it, just a couple of years ago, a Clinton appointed judge ruled in favor of WikiLeaks, said that they had the exact same constitutional protections um, that were awarded to everyone who printed the, the uh, Pentagon Papers. Um, there have been Clinton-appointed judges, and uh, I don't know, this may be the first Obama-appointed judge that hasn't gone entirely team sport politically. Um, but it has happened. Uh, I, when there's, j- just a couple of weeks ago, when the judge ruled, uh, dismissed the case against uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer, saying, well, I can't really rule on the case when everybody in it is an FBI agent. It, sometimes, you know, the judges will just throw their hands up in the air and be like, there's too much here for me to ignore. I have to do what the law says we have to do here. You know, one of the things I find interesting, and I've seen this a lot with this, apparently Sussman at some point came to the CIA with this information. And the CIA looked at it and literally said, it's fake. The CIA looked at it and they referred to it as user-generated data. So the so Sussman comes to them and says, here's some data. And they look at it and they're like, eh, you made this stuff up. This didn't come off a server. You made it up yourself. Okay, that's all good and fine. Maybe they reject it. It then goes to the FBI. At that point, the CIA knew that it was a fake. And the CIA knew that the FBI was moving forward and accepting this stuff. That they So am I to believe that the CIA didn't say to the FBI, hey, guys, yeah, uh, we reviewed all that stuff and it's a fraud. And by the way, he's violating the law by deliberately lying to you and giving to you fake evidence and pretending it's as though it's real. That's why I keep saying, Steve, it comes back to the these intelligence and law enforcement agents were part of the scam. It was an operation that included the CIA and the FBI because there's no way the FBI looked at it, realized he made it up and then just allowed the, I mean, excuse me, the CIA looked at it, realized that it was made up and then just allowed the FBI to continue on it. And they forgot to tell him that it was fake, uh, in, uh, that it was fake data. Well, I mean, you know, could have just been a heavy paperwork day yeah. <laughs> or month. Um, <clears throat> The, to to pretend like there wasn't coordination uh, on at least a, a managerial or administrative level uh, is the, I, the height of foolishness. I, it takes more work and energy to explain away the fact that there was a, a coordinated effort to do this or an operation to do this than it does to admit that one occurred. Um <clears throat> Maybe that's where maybe that's where the corporate press gets uh, gets their daily workout in, in the heavy lifting that they have to do in order to to remanufacture reality instead of report on what simply is. I, I honestly don't know at this point because it seems pretty cut and dry that uh, that this was in fact coordinated. There is another uh, article along the same. Uh, issue the the Russiagate hoax goes deeper than we thought. The latest filing by Special Counsel John Durham investigating Russiagate and the Hillary Clinton campaign suggests the rabbit hole goes a bit deeper than we thought. One hates to sound like Rachel Maddow, but it's just that much more likely the walls are closing in. And there's another line in here. Uh, as he has done in the past, Durham used the required motion as a chance to tip over a few cards he's holding. It looks like aces. 
Steve Boykinen. Well, I, and this is something that John Durham has done effectively, that so often we see that there will be a, a special prosecutor, and then the media is filled with leaks, and everybody knows exactly what's going on. Durham has used the, the motion as almost a weapon incredibly effectively. Um, sorry, I'm walking to my, my office right now. <laughs> um, but no, he, he's... Uh, He's done some incredibly skilled work here, and I think that the way that he's timed it, almost in between media releases, where there's been, you know, some big news, and then it's quiet. Well, the last couple of weeks, Durham has really come through with, uh, with I guess, controlled releases of information. Uh, well, you know, Steve, what we're the thing we're learning too also is that Russiagate it wasn't just a fraud; it was cooked up information. I mean, completely made of whole cloth. We found that the Steele dossier, Christopher Steele claimed that he had information from the Russian Pentagon inside the Kremlin, whatever, and the people that were paying him was the Clinton team, which they hid, and the FBI also hid it from the FISA court. So he's being played by paid by the Clinton team. They then send him to this guy. Ultimately, the information comes from a guy named Charles Dolan, Chuck Dolan, who was the head of the Clinton uh, uh, um, uh, uh, campaign in Virginia. So the Steele dossier on one end is being paid by the Clinton people. On the other end, the data is being is coming from a Clinton campaign person. It was like, hey, I'm going to pay you to find some dirt on Trump. Really? Where, I, where can I find it? Go talk to this guy in the next room sitting next to me that I pay. He'll give you the dirt on, on Trump, and then you can put it in a steel dossier. And this is what we see over and over and over. And might I add, Michael Sussman was the guy that went out and hired CrowdStrike, the only people to this day who've looked at the DNC server, and it was, and then the DNC was allowed to wipe the server after all of that. It just seems to me so blatantly obvious. I'll put it like this. If John Durham couldn't figure this out, he'd be the stupidest human being on earth. Uh, Steve? No, I mean, that's accurate. But th- this <clears throat> really is uh, highlights the, the abject failure of the corporate press, and to uh, a large extent, uh, the satellite independent media, because um, <laughs> the there were outlets who were reporting on this. There, there were people who had at least, uh, you know, partial insider information. The, a lot of this had already been pre-disclosed. Uh, and the media, because of the way that it, it essentially functions, where AP will issue a press release, and then all of the rest of the outlets will confirm it, call a couple of sources to be like, oh, yeah, I saw that article, too. Yeah, that, that's, that's how that works. And that's your media ecosystem echo chamber. So none of these people were doing the slightest amount of due diligence covering Russia. In fact, most of them were gleefully piling on with whatever nonsensical, salacious tidbit they could find and reporting it as gospel truth. It's... Uh, yeah, an entirely made-up scandal taken to the most ridiculous extremes. And now that it's coming full circle, I don't even know if half of the country is going to perk their ears up to notice. Well, in fact, that's my next question, is what 
does all of this actually do? Because we still see Hillary Clinton's face popping up uh, every now and then. I believe they're still using her as a trial balloon to see if there's any viability for her in 2024. Um, So what does this do? I mean, well, ultimately what it's probably going to do is just push people into their political corners a little bit further and and have them, you know, dig in a little bit deeper. Um, Hopefully what it does is it peels away uh, a number of individuals who who want to take a little bit more control over their life and, and not necessarily leave it all up to the the megalomaniacal pig whims of sociopathic war criminals. Um, however, um, I, it's going to generate a lot of press. Might give us a nice little midterm distraction. By all accounts, the Democrats are going to get crushed in the midterms anyway. So I, it, it'll. I'm, I'm cynically, of course, I'd be, uh, could go a totally different way, but I think it will just add to midterm fodder uh, as, you know, more and more distractions come our way. Let me give you one more, even either even cynical, more cynical possibility, knowing that the Republicans may want to look into this in when they get in, char- in, in power. If I were the Democrats, I'd get Durham to do, finish his investigation, to charge a couple people with lying to the FBI, close it out. Be done with it. And then say, well, Republicans, we're finished. It's all over. No point. Don't bring up. Let's not beat dead horses and double jeopardy. And it's all over. 30 seconds, Steve. Oh, no, I, that, that is probably the more accurate response to it. <laughs> if they can shut this down and bury it and get it out of the way, then uh, then the only thing they'll have to worry about when the Republicans take over is Hunter Biden's laptop. And won't that be nice? Steve Poikin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, gentlemen. All right, folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The ouster of Imran Khan. How much involvement did the U.S. have in Pakistan's coup? Imran Khan joins the long list of deposed prime ministers and underscores the reality that, in Pakistan, whoever the people elect, the U.S.-backed military is always in charge. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. So it's reported that following the weeks of high drama and controversy that have racked the nation, Imran Khan has been removed from office. The Pakistani prime minister suffered a vote of no confidence and a loss in the Supreme Court, ending his rule after less than four years. Coalition partners abandoned him, leaving his Pakistan Tehreek a Insaf party in the minority. The cricket star turned political leader had been warning for some weeks that a foreign power assumed to be the U.S. 
was seeking to overthrow him because of his independent foreign policy, which had Pakistan growing closer to Russia and China. And he went so far as to single out Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, Donald Liu, as the mastermind of the operation. Daniel Lazar was the United States responsible or for fomenting this coup against Foreign Prime Minister Imran Khan? Uh, the answer is, is, is kind of is complicated, but uh, basically um, the needle points uh, in the direction of yes. I mean, what happens on March 7th, the, uh, the, the, the outgoing uh, Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. Uh, hosted a farewell lunch at the ambassador's residence uh, in Washington, uh, sometimes known as Pakistan House. Uh, it was attended by uh, a number of U.S. personnel, including a guy named Donald, Donald Liu, who is the, uh, the State Department chief for South Asian affairs. Uh, and at the, uh, at the March 7th uh, luncheon, uh, Liu uh, heavily criticized um, uh, Pakistan for going ahead with a meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin on February 24th, the day of the, uh, the day uh, Putin invaded uh um, uh, uh, the Ukraine for failing to cancel, for failing to criticize the Russian invasion, uh, and assorted other crimes which uh, clearly had uh, gravely angered the U.S. Um, and since the uh, since the, the military in, in Pakistan has a long-standing. Uh, uh, and very close relationship with the U.S., albeit an extremely complicated one. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that was seen as a signal that the U.S. wouldn't mind if the military took action to, uh, to dislodge uh, Khan from power and replace him with someone more amenable to U.S. interests. So that's basically. So the U.S. the U.S. is a very very powerful country. Obviously, uh, Pakistan extremely weak and unstable. Um, uh, it has a very erratic uh, foreign uh, policies, both domestically and in foreign terms. Um, and uh, but when the U.S. shows its, its displeasure, um, you know, uh, 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 politics in uh, in Pakistan tremble, and, and this is what happened. So, um, so I think that I, I think it would be naive to say that the U.S. had no no role in uh, in Khan's overthrow. Uh, Dan, I also think this is particularly now at a time when certain people in the world, certain groups in the world, certain nations and regions are looking at the possibility of a new order wherein the U.S. won't be the king of the hill. I think that a lot of countries, you know, the the, um, the equivalent of, you know, uh, was it Tennessee and, and Missouri during the Civil War, a lot of the, the border states, as we call them, that are kind of you know, they, they, they'd like to see a new order, but they don't want to get on the bad side of the U.S., would look at the U.S. doing this kind of overtly to a country of 220 million. And if I'm a, some kind of a leader of a country, it makes me more concerned that they wouldn't think twice about overthrowing me. And it would make me more lean towards, you know, maybe we would be better off if we had a reorder, maybe a little bit more to the east. What do you think? I think it's absolutely correct. And I, I, and I think that the U.S. stance, though, is generating a, a, a counter-reaction, where essentially that the, the, the more the U.S. pushes countries like, like, uh, 
like uh, Pakistan, the more angry other countries get witnessing this action uh, and therefore are, are, are more resistant to American overtures, more, you know, more determined to maintain their independence, to keep their distance from Washington, to uh, try to balance in between uh, America on one hand and, uh, and Russia and China on the other hand, um, and, and that therefore, you know, U.S. pressure is backfiring. You know, not only was there the, the meeting uh, or the, the, the statements made at the luncheon, but Khan says that he shared a diplomatic cable from Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. Assad Majid, in which he claimed Lou had essentially threatened the country with a coup if it did not immediately change course. And in contrast, if Khan were deposed, quote, all will be forgiven, end quote, and Pakistan can return to its status as a favored U.S. ally. So not only were there veiled references and threats made, apparently this was put in a in cable form uh, and is in the possession of Imran Khan. Yeah, it was put in the cable form by the by the outgoing Pakistani ambassador who who was the host of the of the lunch uh, that Donald Donald Liu attended. Um, you know, so uh, so so much depends on the spin the ambassador put on the on on Liu's words. But I I, I think it's I think it's I'm trying to be very careful here, but I think it's entirely reasonable to assume that the U.S. made its grave displeasure known. I mean, the U.S. is doing its damnedest to to marshal world opinion uh, behind the Ukraine and against Russia, and it's not succeeding. Because, in fact, you know, the, the, if you look at the U.N. General Assembly votes, you'll see that countries representing a clear majority of the world's population have either abstained or have opposed U.S. efforts to condemn Russia. Um, and essentially what's happening is, that, is, the, is the U.S. hypocrisy is so obvious. Um, and, and America has, has, you know, has overplayed its hand so many times when it comes to, to pushing third world countries around that, you know, that, that, these, that the countries like India uh, and, and Indonesia, to name just two examples, uh, are, are very angry and are resisting U.S. overtures. So I think that is the story. I think that is the story behind Pakistan. And, and the fact that, that Khan was overthrown makes other world leaders all the more determined to, uh, not, to, not to, to fall into America's arms. You know, this may be a stretch, but... Looking at, and, and I think a lot of things hinge on the French election, and I think there are a lot of people, including the French, who will look at these kinds of things. Look what just happened. The, 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 um, the, um, the EU, Brussels, just fined uh, Marine Le Pen like some humongous amount. They just took some action against her, which certainly gives the appearance of meddling in an election. I, I don't think it's just, you know, maybe it's a stretch to tie France to this, but I think the issue of meddling in an election and of countries having their own sovereignty may be a f- even a factor you know, in an, in an, at least in an abstract way, I think this kind of stuff is going to be a factor in the French election. Do you think that's a stretch? 
No, not, not at all a stretch. I think the, um, and, I, and I think that even if, if Macron wins, and I, I would give him like, you know, 55% odds of winning. But even if he wins, he's going to be affected by Le Pen's uh, uh, rhetoric and her, and her argument. I mean, I think that, I think that, that clearly uh, the uh, French voters are, are quite upset by the heavy, the heavy-handed taxes in the U.S., they're quite upset that the situation in Eastern Europe has spun out of control so rapidly. They're, they're very angry over the economic toll that the war will take on the European Union. And the damage, by the way, is just getting underway. Um, and so, 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 so Macron, even if he squeaks through, is going to be extremely aware of these feelings in the French population. And so therefore he will be, you know, he's going to have to take action to, uh, to assuage such French, uh, French sensibilities. Uh, and he's going to have to do something to some, to somehow try to put pressure on the U S to, to be aware of European concerns and not to let the damage get worse and worse. But, it's, it's far from clear that, that that is even possible. If Macron squeaks through, what is, what is the larger signal being sent? That Marie Le Pen's far-right ideology is on the rise? Or that people in France are very, very, very displeased with their uh, economic situation? Or a combination of the two. Uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, I mean, it's undeniable that, you know, that, the, that the right wing has gained in power uh, under under Macron. No question about it. But but in the election, we saw this fascinating three way split between Macron in the center, uh, Marine Le Pen in the far right, and uh, and Mélenchon on the far left. Um, and 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 the, the electorate split three ways. Although there's some evidence that the that, that there's a, a certain shift underway to the to the Le Pen position, but nonetheless the nonetheless the electorate is uh, is clearly divided in three ways, and and of those three ways, clearly majority of the country and either the far left or the far right is very unhappy with the way things are going, and and in the U.S. The U.S. is similar, except that there's no Mélenchon. So in the U.S., it's, like it's Macron versus, uh, versus Le Pen, in a sense. And, and clearly, the Democrats are worried that, you know, that, that, that they're heading for a bloodbath, that, uh, that, you know, that, 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 uh, that, Joe, that uh, Joe Biden is a disaster, a complete disaster, um, and that, therefore, these policies that he's pursuing in the Ukraine only have six or seven months left to live. Therefore, come November, the U.S. will undergo a sea change and the attitude towards Russia will fundamentally alter. In precisely what way, we can't be sure, but certainly the, the rug will, be, will have been pulled out from under the Democratic Party pro-war establishment. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you, out, having you back. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 